Welcome to Map Traps Legal Briefs, the podcast where we explore specific strategies and tactics used by brands to protect their pricing, distribution, and intellectual property rights. The information in this podcast is provided for general informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and Map Traps guest presenters. Listeners should seek legal advice from a lawyer licensed in the listener's state. Welcome to Map Traps Legal Briefs, the podcast where we explore specific strategies and tactics used by brands to protect their pricing, distribution, and intellectual property. Today's podcast is going to dive into creating a legal foundation to make brand protection more effective before, hopefully, you have a problem. Joining us by phone is Jeremy Richardson, Esquire, a partner in the New York office of Freeborn and Peters. Jeremy's practice focuses on consumer product manufacturers. He leads Freeborn's consumer products industry team. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Ron. So nice to hear you again. Hope all is well out there. Everything is fantastic. Uh, you know, living at the top of a mountain. I'm looking forward to this topic. I think this is going to be a good one. Really helpful information. So uh, I'm ready. Uh, I'm ready to dive in when you are. Okay. Well, let's see. So there are many actions that brands can take uh, in order to protect their products and sales. Taking these steps in the beginning goes a long way uh, in saving money and heartache down the road. So what I'd like to do is maybe break this down into three sections, one on filings, one on policies, and then one on actions. So tell us a little bit about what, what types of filings can a brand make um, with the government to help set the legal foundation of enforcement? Well, typically, when I'm thinking of filings with the government for brand protection, I'm thinking of IP protection. So patents, trademarks, and copyrights, each one of those are distinct areas of the law. Patents protect the way something works or functions. Trademarks protect um, the brand identity. Like when you see a a swoosh on a sneaker, you know it's a Nike. Copyrights uh, protect um, the expression of an idea. So as soon as I take my paintbrush and put it to the canvas and start painting. Uh, There's the expression of an idea and that's copyright protection. So each of these uh, distinct areas can be protected through filing with the US government uh, with patents and trademarks. It's the US Patent and Trademark Office. With copyrights, it's the Copyright Office. Uh, Now you do get some common law rights even if you don't file, but there are enhanced benefits for filing Um, In the case of, say, trademarks, you get presumptive um, nationwide uh, protection of your trademark, um, whereas common law, you just get within the region that you're selling uh, goods or services. You also get enhanced damages, and often you can recover attorney's fees. So there are these incentives to file, uh, and it's a really good idea to do this for companies because intellectual property is one of those sort of intangible assets can't really quite put your finger on it, but uh, if you're ever interested in selling your company uh, or valuing your company, uh, those intangible assets, intellectual property rights uh, are better protected and uh, I think really much more valuable uh, to the outsider when you have a registration uh, that uh, that has been issued. Uh, and going through the registration process uh, will also, you know, sort of work out the kinks, I guess, of Uh, your intellectual property rights. Uh, Again, I'll I'll talk about trademarks for a moment. You want to make sure that uh, 
the mark is clear that nobody else is using a confusingly similar mark on the same or related goods or services, and the application process uh, will essentially force you because the trademark office uh, will go and review and look for other people using, uh, as I said, uh, similar uh, marks on the same or related goods. And it, it essentially, uh, you know, sort of is a self-clearing process. I recommend doing the clearance beforehand, uh, but it uh, it really sets up the the framework to make sure that you are the sole owner uh, of that mark and similar concepts with patent and with uh, uh, with copyright to uh, to ensure that your rights uh, exist and if you have to go to court you can enforce them. Uh, so that is what I think of when we talk about government filings to uh, to uh, promote brand protection. Okay, not to not to go down a, a rabbit hole because we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of ground to cover. But I am curious about when it comes to a trademark. So let's just talk about my company, MapTrap. We have a service mark on MapTrap. Uh, sometimes the USPTO comes back and says that a term you're trying to trademark is too generic or too descriptive. Uh, and then you can go ahead, but you can actually trademark a, a visual representation of the mark, not the actual words, but a graphic of MapTrap. Uh, you know, what are the differences there and what are the benefits uh, or, or or disadvantages? So there are different types of marks and, and you really uh, hit it on the head there. Uh, the, the broadest protection goes for what we call a block letter mark. Those are literally just the, uh, the letters represented in a block format, uh, MapTrap being one potential uh, block letter mark. Uh, and then you can use words with a logo. Um, so there's combined words and image, uh, and that has a different level of protection. Instead of using a block letter, you could go for a stylized mark, like a, a particular type of um, script or uh, font, and have the uh, trademark limited to that particular stylized uh, lettering. So there, there are different, um, there are essentially different types of trademarks that you can use. And you're right that the trademark office, when you are applying for a mark, uh, looks to see if the word that you're using is descriptive of the goods or services. And if it's descriptive, then you will not get a registration. Um, if it is fanciful, uh, you think of things like Kodak for film. Well, at least we used to think of Kodak for film. Uh, but the word Kodak was meaningless uh, as it related to film until, of course, Kodak became so famous. So you look for uh, a word that really doesn't have anything to do with the goods or services so that is, um, it's not it's not suggestive, it's not descriptive, and those are the strongest marks uh, that, that you can use. Uh, but uh, but sometimes difficult to come up with those with those marks. Um, and again, because they're not suggestive of the services, initially, uh, they they may not be meaningful to consumers, so it takes uh, takes some time to build up brand awareness. Uh, and then, um, if you have a mark that is sort of descriptive, not uh, not fanciful, uh, eventually you could get trademark rights uh, through acquired distinctiveness. Uh, but that might be a, a topic for uh, for a, a later podcast. Yeah, I think we'll definitely do a little bit of a deeper dive. Uh, on another one. So let's move over into policies. So now you've got your filings, you've got a trademark and a patent and copyrights. So 
how do you establish in policy that you're you have them and that you're going to defend them? Sure. So there are a bunch of different types of policies that you can have in terms of brand protection. Um, one of uh, the first that comes to mind is having a, a product warranty that goes uh, goes with your products and assures a consumer that what they're getting is going to work. And if it doesn't, you'll stand behind it. Uh, so I think of warranties as one of the best ways to promote um, good customer relationships. Uh, but again, if you're going to have a warranty and you're going to stand behind your product, you have to stand behind your product. And if a consumer calls and says, hey, this broke uh, and you you uh, you have a warranty on it, you have to be you brand owner have to be willing to spend the money to replace that product, fix the product or at least make the consumer happy. Uh, but again, uh, I think it's a great way to uh, to promote your brand um, and and improve uh, relationships with consumers. Uh, then there are all sorts of different, um, well, I'll call them generally pricing policies, but you know, let's be careful about that. Um, you know, we we've talked about MAP, minimum advertised price policies. Ron, you know a little something about that. Uh, those, of course, are the policies that regulate between the brand owner and the retailer what the advertised price of a particular product will be, uh, typically setting a floor for how much uh, a product is advertised. But that is distinct from the sale price of the product, what the retailer is going to charge. So MAP policies uh, are generally, um, uh, I, I, I like them. Uh, I think they're they're pretty commonplace in many uh, consumer product segments and, and uh, work well, uh, as long, again, as the brand owner is going to stand behind it, enforce it, and, uh, and apply it uh, appropriately. Uh, some people may have heard of these Colgate policies or minimum retail price policies. Uh, well, they are in many cases lawful. I typically uh, do not recommend having a Colgate policy. And by the way, a Colgate policy is where the brand owner dictates uh, the, the retail price. Um, these can be very difficult to uh, administer and enforce, uh, and often companies, unless they're doing it really, really, really right and being very, very careful, they can slip into essentially having agreements on pricing with retailers. And that's where you get into these violations of, of federal law and also many state laws that have their own uh, pricing policies, or I should say, uh, laws and regulations regarding pricing policies. So it's difficult to navigate those waters both at the federal and at the state level, and it's very easy to run afoul of the regulations, which is why typically I do not recommend them. Um, then there are uh, other agreements that you might have, and I do say agreements um, or policies, but really agreements that you might have with the reseller, authorized reseller agreements that uh, that really contractually regulate how the retailer is going to go about promoting your product. For example, if you spend a lot of money photographing your product, you may want your authorized resellers to use only your photographs and not use their own photographs to promote your product. Uh, and then, of course, distributor agreements. Many of our clients work uh, work with distributors, uh, so that's just another layer of uh, supply chain and, and retail distribution. And I often do recommend having a separate agreement with a the distributor. There are differences between 
the distribution agreement and the reseller agreement from the brand perspective. Okay, and just so just for clarity, the difference. I know we've 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 gone into this uh, in a little more depth in other podcasts, but since we're here, the main difference between a policy and agreement is a signature, correct? Yeah. So a policy is a unilateral doctrine within a company that we're going to do something in a particular way, and it does not require. Uh, agreement. It doesn't require uh, a signature. It doesn't require uh, a, a, an, a, the other side to essentially enter into a contract with you. It is unira- unilateral um, and one-sided. And typically when you have a policy, you as a brand have a policy, your retailers can either abide by it or not. And if they don't, it's up to you as the brand owner to decide what to do about that. The agreements are contracts. So if you have Uh, what we typically call an authorized reseller agreement or a distributor agreement. Those actually are contracts. Those are things that uh, both sides would sign and be contractually bound to. And if one party or the other does not abide by its obligations, we have breach of contract. And let me just come back to the policy for a moment because it's a point that we make over and over. uh, And I think sometimes our clients don't quite understand a minimum advertised price policy is unilateral. It is not an agreement. It does not require, and in fact, you don't want your retailers to sign it. They could acknowledge receipt of it, um, but you're just telling them that this is how we operate. Um, And if they follow it, great. And if they don't, then you brand owner have to decide what to do about that. Okay. That makes sense. Um, And plus you don't want to have to negotiate every time you change your map policy. And so I guess not by by having it not be an agreement, you don't have to worry about getting everyone to sign off on it. You can simply change it when you want uh, and then inform people of the change. So now let's move into the actions piece of this. So now we've we've gotten our trademarks and we've gotten our uh, we've gotten our copyrights. We've got our policies in place. So with Map, we you know Map Trap, we work with many brands and help them to enforce their uh, minimum advertised pricing policies. Uh, we also have a couple of Colgate Doctrine clients, uh, but as we know, they're not legal uh, documents. They're not legal policies in so far as you can't sue someone for violating uh, your pricing policy. You can only stop selling to them. Uh, you know, that's if you can figure out how they got the products. Um, so what are the benefits to to any of the any of the intellectual property filings in a map policy? or maybe there aren't any, uh, and if not, that's fine. How do you then defend the policies, uh, the filings through policy? Well, when we talk about trademark, for example, um, and we did a podcast uh, last season um, about the first sale doctrine and whether a retailer obtaining legitimate non-counterfeit goods that bear your company's trademark Um, whether they can just sell it in any manner they want to sell your product in any manner they want to, uh, regardless of the brand image and how you as a brand owner would like the interaction to be between the retailer and the consumer. Um, And of course, the answer that we talked about in that prior podcast was uh, no, that a retailer has to abide by your sales standards. And if they're not, it actually is a trademark infringement. So if you have Uh, a map policy that talks about how uh, you want the retailers to 
uh, promote your brand. And, and look, let's face it, part of the minimum advertised price policy is to level the playing field so that retailers will invest in your brand and sell it in the proper manner. Um, and if a rogue retailer uh, obtains your product through um, uh, some distribution channel that you didn't authorize, uh, and they're not selling and promoting your product and your brand in the way that uh, it should be, uh, it, it is a trademark infringement. So uh, that is uh, one example of how these filings, trademark filings, uh, can really help a brand uh, in terms of enforcing uh, its policies, in, including a map policy. Okay. And so how do you go about uh, how do you go about enforcing um, through the policies, right? So you're, you're using a product like MapTrap price and uh, product monitoring system. Um, and so what are the tools, digital millennial copyright, cease and desist? Are there differences? What, what's the best way to go about that? So in terms of enforcing the policy, when you're using a company, when you're using MapTrap and, and Ron's resources, and you discover a retailer that is not abiding by the minimum advertised price, um, then you want to contact them and uh, and tell them that you as a company have determined to take certain action. And it could be that you're first going to alert them to the situation. Maybe they weren't aware of it. If it's a retailer that you are familiar with, if it's a uh, rogue retailer that you've never heard of, it may require sending uh, a notice that they are violating your trademark rights uh, and telling them that they have to stop. Uh, and then taking further action in that way. Um, if it is a copyright, if they're using your images uh, without your permission uh, and selling product on a third-party platform, you can send a Digital Millennium Copyright Act takedown notice to the platform, uh, and that will be responded to very quickly by most of these uh, third-party platforms, certainly the reputable ones, uh, because they will be liable if they don't act within a particular period of time. So it could be, depending upon whether you know who the retailer is or not, it could be either a DMCA takedown notice if it's copyright. That, by the way, does not apply to trademark. Uh, it could be a cease and desist letter if you know the identity of the retailer. Uh, it could be filing with the third-party platform if it is a trademark, an IP violation notice, uh, which even though not under the DMCA, most of these platforms will respond to. Uh, and if you can provide them with proof of your trademark registration or your patent registration, or if it's again, copyright DMCA, copyright registration as evidence of your rights, um, that that is a way to get uh, get product removed from, uh, from those sites. So when you say platform, uh, are you being specific to an Amazon or an eBay, or are you talking about the domain registrar like a GoDaddy or a Hostway? I'm talking about um, an Amazon or an eBay or or one of these um, e-commerce uh, platforms where product is being sold by third-party retailers. And what about uh, a non-platform-based e-commerce store that's a Shopify store and that they've got, you know, Ron's ronsdogpets.com. Well, they too can be subject or are subject to the intellectual property right uh, laws and potentially subject to uh, infringement damages. So again, if, if, you, uh, if you know who they are, 
uh, if they're running an e-commerce store, if it's on Shopify or if it's on their own website and they are violating your IP rights, a cease and desist letter uh, is, is usually the first step. And if that is not responded to, uh, often it would then get escalated to uh, to a lawsuit. Okay. And that's something that we really do want to avoid because that runs into some money uh, and not every brand can afford to go there. So hopefully all of the all of the points that uh, you've made during this podcast will work and that they'll go away. Uh, I guess we can have another podcast about how to sue someone, uh, what are the costs and and what's the effort involved there. For now, let's let's just uh, finish this one out. Thank you very much. I think we've we've spoken about a lot of things and uh, you know your wisdom is is always appreciated, sir. Perfect. Yep. And if you have any questions uh, or you have any recommendations or uh, suggestions for podcasts, please reach on out and have a great day. If you'd like to submit a question or topic for a Legal Briefs podcast, email them to legalbriefs at maptrap.com. For more information about how MapTrap can help you with your online brand protection needs, visit www.maptrap.com.